Hey, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. If you're new with us, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. And here's a question I want to throw at you um, as we get started today. Have you ever been through a season in your spiritual walk where you just struggled with obedience in a particular area or just sin, that, I mean, just, man, just struggling. My hand's here. Anybody relate with me? Yeah, okay, thank you. I got to see some hands now. Hey, yes, John Chasteen, even though he's a pastor, I still struggle with the power of indwelling sin in my own life. And I, I can reflect back of just seasons where, man, I'm, I'm desiring, I'm longing for God to work and just struggling with various areas in my life. I'm thankful for God's grace, as we sang about earlier, that we can go to him as a father who extends grace and he's poured out his spirit to help us follow him in life. But Nehemiah can definitely relate. I mean, we just read through Nehemiah chapter nine last week. And what stands out to you as Nehemiah recounts the history of Israel? I'm not sure there was much positive that was shared. They acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey God's commands. And it's almost like that summarizes the, the history of Israel. And so we come to the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, and it ends in verse 38, which says this. After recounting the history, they say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And that is where we pick up today. As we look at chapter 10 today, it's going to unpack in more detail what was this covenant that they were committed to in writing. And here's a question I want you to wrestle with today. Is a covenant renewal what you, we, or I need today? There are three questions that I'm going to walk us through as we read the text today. Let me just go ahead and throw them out there at you. The first one is this. Who is it that made this covenant renewal? I want to look at the who. The second question, what are the details of this covenant renewal. But then I want to get to the third question. How does the gospel shape how we think about obedience today? Because Nehemiah is not the end of the story. We stand here today and we've heard the other acts of the story. King Jesus has come and he has accomplished redemption. So how does he help us think about how we read Nehemiah 10 and how we respond with our lives today? So let's jump into this first question, which is this. Who made the covenant renewal? Let's read verses uh, in Nehemiah 10, verses 1 through 27. The word of God says this, and, and I'll ask for your grace as I work through these names. Um, because I'm going to do my best. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, 
Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Meziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah, these are the priests. Verse 9. And the Levites, Jeshua the son of Azaniah, Banu of the sons of Hinnadad, Kadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Peliah, Hanan, Mika, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bazai, Haruf, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshazabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, Maseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, Bana. I know we got some women expecting, and you've got a full list here of opportunities. Notice how this section began in verse 1. On the seals are the names. These seals, as you think about this covenant that they put in writing, refer to the signatures of these leaders that was going to bind them to the covenant that they were making. And now as we reflect on these names, most of them represent not just individuals, but like heads of families. And so you'll see it starts with Nehemiah and Zedekiah. And then we have a section, verses 2 through 8. It's on the priest. And then we go to verses 9 to 13. And it says, these are the Levites. And then we have a final section, 14 through 27. These are the chiefs, or maybe your translation says, these are the leaders of the people. If you want to compare, this is a list similar to what's found in Ezra chapter 2. And then we come to verse 28. And in verse 28, the list continues. And it says this, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who've separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, and they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath 
to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. So who is making this covenant? I want you to see what we have here is that all the groups in the community are included. From Nehemiah, who's, who's leading them, to Levites and priests, to their servants. You've got men and you've got women. You've got sons and you've got daughters. We've got young and we've got old. And I wanna just pause here for a second. As many of you guys know, back in January, I transitioned from being a full-time pastor at Redemption Hill to uh, being the next-gen director of mobilization for this same Sin Boston network of churches. And so my new role is working with this next-gen to mobilize college students to live on, on mission in churches like what Jay Cross is doing down in Dorchester. And so I wanna just take a second and I wanna speak to the next generation. Right now, up here on the second floor, we have teachers and leaders who are pleading with our kids and holding out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice that they're represented here in the text. It said, all who had understanding. Have you thought about the ripe opportunity of the children in our church? If you were to just think of this next-gen window, and I know maybe babies aren't in a place or these young toddlers where they have knowledge and understanding. But surely as we move up, and especially the grades one to five classes, that these are children that can really understand and complicate, understand and wrestle with the implications of who Jesus is and what that means for their life. As a church, we need to be praying for Meg Lewis, our kids director, and these grades one through five leaders. They're not just like managing our kids so that we get an hour of, of you know, where there's no chaos. It's a, an incredible opportunity to invest and, and, and call these children to treasure Jesus above all things. Hey, if you're a grades one through five teacher or you've done that, just raise your hand real quick. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. How many middle school or high school students do we have in the room? Let me just see your hand here. Where are they at? I see. Yes. You guys may not know this, and I'm speaking to everyone here. We've got leaders who give up almost every Friday night to hold the gospel out to these middle and high school students. Tyler, Larissa, Mason, thank you guys. And there have been others, Connor, others, who have spent time with our students. Why am I doing this? I want you to like, it's easy for us to look at Redemption Hill and to think of the adults and, and all the small groups. But this window here, the decisions that these children and these students make before they graduate college are going to shape some of the, the rest of their life. And we've got to be a church that's investing in them and helping them understand a treasure and know and follow 
Jesus, middle school and high school students. I, they're listed here. I imagine sons and daughters, like if, if we were to unpack some of the names, that they were here with the community making this covenant renewal of like, God, man, our life's yours. And I'm praying and do this. Don't underestimate how God can use you on your campuses because most of these middle schools and high, high schools is one of the most unreached places in our cities in Dorchester and Medford and all of the surrounding cities. And what if God were to use you? Maybe it's you don't have to wait until you're 20 plus years old, but you can say, God, would you give me a passion now to love you and make you known in my schools? And we need to be praying for middle school and high school students. And then our college. I mean, some of our current college leaders, James set us up incredibly well. And now some others have taken over the reins, Medeus and Caroline and, and Faith and Pam and Priscilla. Hopefully I'm not. Connor, you probably gave rise to some of these students sitting here today. College students, I want to speak to you for a second. It, it hit me this past week, and thank you guys for giving me a few seconds here to just speak to these different people in our group, in our church. Almost daily, I'm speaking to college students now. And it hit me, I want to make sure that what I'm speaking to them that I've actually shared with you guys. And, and here's what I'm pleading with college students. My goal is to help college students reshape and align their life around the mission of God. I'm pleading with them to give their life for the sake of the gospel and to go live somewhere strategic for the glory of God. And so college students, I wanna ask you to pray two things. Whether you're joining us online or whether you're here today, will you pray these two things? God, where do you want me to spend my life for the sake of the gospel? And then I challenge college students with this second prayer. God, will you provide a job there to go live on mission for you? What's the point of listing all these names? Like, why do we have verses one through 28 here? I know we're sitting here reading this individualistically. But this was a, a covenant renewal that was collectively made by the people. It wasn't a hundred different renewals. It was a collective renewal. And I want us to see that. The second question, let's, let's jump into this. We've looked at who. What are the actual details that make up this covenant renewal. Let's, let's read verse 28 again. And as we read through 28 and 29, I want you to be thinking and looking out for what are the particulars of this covenant that they were making? Verse 28, it says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God 
and his rules and his statutes. What we first see here is that verses 28 and and 29 unpack the general oath of this covenant renewal. And then a second, we're going to look at 30 through the rest of the chapter, which are the particulars of this covenant renewal. But there are three things I want to share with you that stick out to me as I reflect on this general oath. And the first one is this. The word seriousness comes to mind. Do you see what they do here? They enter into a curse and an oath. These two words together convey their seriousness to keep these commitments. By, and you would find this oftentimes with covenants. There would be blessings for obedience and curse for disobedience. The curse here is like, hey God, would you just pour down punishment on us if we fail or turn back on our word? And so there was a seriousness to this renewal they were making. The second, the word that comes to mind is the word holiness. Do you see here? Who were these people that made this covenant renewal? It was all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. And this is one of the biggest problems that Israel was facing. They had been exiled. They had been scattered among the nations. And now what had happened is all of the ungodly practices of the nations had been adopted in their values and practices. And so there was a fresh sense that God has called us to be a people that are unique, that are set apart. And this is foundational to the law. If I were to go back to Leviticus 20, verse 26, in the law, I'll just read this for you. It says this, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Israel was to be a special people of God's possession that reflected who God was. You probably hear these echoes as we preached last year through 1 Peter. And 1 Peter says, be holy as I am holy. It's it's a call to us to think about as we follow Jesus, what does it mean to live separated and unique lives. So here's a question I want you to wrestle with. What values of the world have you let negatively shape how you follow Jesus? What values of the world have you let negatively shape how you follow Jesus? And let me give you attention that we're going to have to manage. As we think about what it means to be separated from the peoples, I know Jason's going to wrestle with this in Dorchester. What does it mean to be separated? And yet those are the very people that are far from God and need Jesus. In fact, as we think about the vision God's given us as a church, Over the next decade, we've highlighted that there were 755,000 people in Medford or surrounding city. I think it's like a five-mile radius. 
How are we gonna reach those people which statistics would say like 97% of them would not be professing followers of Jesus? How are we gonna be a people that are wholly set apart and reach these people with the gospel of, of Jesus? I'll say this, there's a really good chance that you either live or work near somebody who's in that 755,000. And guess who is the best person to reach those people? It's you. So even as we go through Multiply March and we're bringing on different partners, I hope it's a fresh reminder to you that we live in, in the midst of great darkness and lostness every day. And that God would impress on your heart that, that you're the best person to reach that neighbor or that coworker with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say this. You have a better chance than a pastor. Think about the spaces and places where I, you know, yeah, I go to the grocery store and the bank and the gas. And I get gas. <laughs> that probably came out wrong. <laughs> you know, remove that. But you, the teachers, those who work in finance, engineering, think about where all your jobs are. You spend countless hours every week with many of these people who don't know Jesus. And I'm never going to meet them unless they show up on a Sunday morning. And so as I'm college students again, as I'm talking with college students, the reason I'm saying graduate and go live somewhere strategic for the glory of God, and particularly I'd love for you to come to Boston because we need people who are in the workforce living as everyday spirit-led missionaries and doing that alongside of our churches. I mean, what if I can mobilize a student to be a part of what Jason's doing, Lord willing, down in Dorchester, and, and they're getting a job in Dorchester, in the schools or wherever, and they're leveraging their connections and relationships to live as an everybody spirit-lit missionary alongside of the church plant there. Can I get an amen, Jason? Let's go, come, come on, kid. Seriousness, holiness, and obedience. Obedience. We're gonna walk in God's law. We're gonna observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God, his rules and his statutes. This language is reminiscent, re, that was hard, reminiscent of the original covenant that they made at Mount Sinai. Like God unpacks it and the people in Deuteronomy, they're, 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 I mean, we're gonna do this. We're gonna keep and do all the law. And so what's happening here is this isn't a new covenant. It is a renewal of the initial covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and their pledge is to keep it all. Do you see that? All of the commandments, the rules, the statutes. It's not like, hey, man, we're, we're gonna try to do some of them. It was a holistic commitment to all of the law. But let's remember this. This is flowing on the hills of Nehemiah, and God's law was given in the context of relationship. Even when God gave it to Moses, like, what's the foundation? I've redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. You are my people, and I want, to want you to live a particular kind of way. 
He's recounted Nehemiah 9 of God's faithfulness. It says for 40 years, they lacked nothing because God was faithful. And so now it's this renewal that's been sparked and stirred because they've seen and experienced the mercy and redemption that God has given to them. So, so that's the general oath. And then what happens in the rest of the chapter here is, is the people highlight the major issues of their day. It's not an exhaustive list. It's the major issues. And so I want us to just walk through what were these particular commitments that they made. Let's look at verse 30. And we're going to walk through them one by one. Verse 30, it says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What's going on here is the issue of intermarriage. This is not a new issue. This was something that Ezra addressed um, back in Ezra 9 and 10. And the, and the key issue here is not racial, but religious. Make sure you hear me. It's not racial, but religious. The concern is that the peoples among the nations who were worshiping other gods would negatively impact the community of faith. This was the undoing of Solomon. Go read about that in 1 Kings chapter 11. And we've already seen that it's addressed in Ezra 9 and 10. And in fact, even after they commit to this here, we're going to see in Nehemiah 13 that they failed. And Nehemiah is going to come back to it again. And so what do we do with this? Let me just speak to the singles here real quick. If you are single, singleness can be a gift from God. If you're single today, that does not necessarily mean that there's something wrong with you. I'm grateful for the singles that God has brought to our church. And so I would say if God has given you whether a season of singleness or maybe God's given you a calling where you feel like this is God's calling in life, use it for the glory of God. But as we think about marriage, let me just apply this jumping real quick to the New Testament and thinking about how should we as Christians think about intermarriage? If you are married to a non-believer, Paul would encourage you to remain married if they are willing to. You can go read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Peter chapter 3. But let me speak to those of you that are not married but would say, hey, I desire marriage. And, and I was thinking through this, I'm thinking of my kids here too. If it's, you know, my own children that are thinking about, hey, dad, what would you give us to help us think about if I have a desire for marriage, how I should pursue that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, that we are to marry only in the Lord. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, which I believe is, can be tied to as we think about marriage. And, and here's what I want you to think about. Marriage is a union that is intimate and deep. 
Think soul and body. Like God's desire for marriage is like complete intimacy and oneness. I love, man, 18 years. Yes, I love that, man. Like, and I love, like, that's the found, I, I love the fact that you said, this is the best way you can pray for me. I wanna be a husband and a dad to my family. Thank you. If, if each of you treasure something differently, how are you ever gonna have a deep union? In fact, if you're not believers, there's actually disunion from the get-go. And so I wanna plead with you as a pastor, for those of you that desire to be married, I know we live in a context where there's not a lot of believers who are treasuring Jesus. But there is much wisdom in the commands of God who he's given us these to love us, protect us, and care for us. And so here's what I wanna plead with you to do that I would tell my kids. Don't just look for somebody who's trying to check the Christian box. That's not it. Hey, let me just pull up a profile and, and whatever app. And like, oh, they say they're a Christian. I'm good. Let's go date. No, you want somebody whose heart is chasing after God. You want a man or a woman who's seeking to treasure Jesus above all things. And I'm just pleading with you. I know there's a lot, like the world saying, don't listen to him. Like you can do it and it'll be fine. And I'm just, I'm try, I've seen it. I'm trying to plead with you to listen, to give humility to God's word and to follow in that. Intermarriage was the first challenge that they committed to. The second one we see in verse 31. Man, I gotta pick up my pace. Jason, I think you, you're, you being here added more words to my sermon, man. I'm gonna blame you. And if the people's, of the land bringing goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. If any of you who knows me, you know, I got, a, I got this is a, a hard one for me because I've written an entire dissertation on the Sabbath and I can't unpack this in like a minute. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna point you to a sermon that I preached on Mark chapter two, verses 23 through chapter three, verse 12, because I'm, I'm not gonna do justice to the issue of the Sabbath here. But I do wanna highlight what was the issue and why did it hit their covenant renewal? The Sabbath was one of the key markers that distinguished them and separated them from the nations. Oh, those are the people that don't work on that day. And so as you think about being separate this was a key part. This was a key issue here. And, and what had happened is they had run into a loophole. I mean, think about it. When the law was written, it was written within the context of them practicing the Sabbath among Jews, but now they've been exiled. So guess what? There are a bunch of non-Jews in their midst. And here's the question. Is it okay for us to buy goods and grain from the non-Jews? I mean, here's my rationale. I'm not working. It's the non-Jews who are working. So I'm not really breaking the Sabbath. And so I'm not really guilty of the Sabbath. But here was the problem. And this is why there was a fresh commitment to this here in their list. 
It was impacting and threatening the tone and spirit of their day. And so as a, as a community, one of, the, one of the main reasons that they ended up in exile is they did not keep the Sabbath, the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee. And so if there's any chance of them to remain in the land and to be a thriving people, there was gonna have to be obedience to this. And so there was a fresh commitment to refrain from commerce, not just working, but from buying goods and grain from others on the Sabbath, which, le which leads us to this question. Are we required to keep the Sabbath today? That's the question I don't have time to answer today, but I will say this and point you to my sermon and dissertation. I believe the law was written to lead us to Jesus. And so when you come to places like Colossians 2 in the New Testament, where Paul says, the Sabbath is a shadow of the things to come. And you have Jesus who makes statements like, all who are weary and heavy burden, come to me and you will find rest for your soul, that I would argue that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And the way I keep the Sabbath is by trusting and walking in faith with Jesus. Now that probably raises a ton of questions for you, which is why you're gonna go have to listen to my sermon and read my dissertation. Um, the third thing, let's look at verses 32 to 33. It says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now I'm gonna pause there. It's gonna be hard for us to do this on the slides here, but if you're like looking at your Bible, I just wanna make a connection here. You see that phrase, the house of our God. It's talking about ministry and service in the temple. Jump all the way down to verse 39. Verse 39, see how this chapter ends. The last phrase, we will not neglect the house of our God. Do you see that? This section, there's a sandwich. We got a house of God sandwich. This section here is unpacking what are the commitments they're making for how the ministry happens in the temple. You guys with me? Give me a thumbs up. We got a thumbs up. There we go. So what, what we're going to see here is, is he's unpacking different commitments because what had happened? They were exiled. The temple had been destroyed. Now the temple was rebuilt. How is the ministry gonna sustain itself? How are we gonna keep all of the laws, the sacrifices, the offerings that God had commanded for us in the temple? Hey, it's gonna require something from us. And so they make a fresh commitment to that. All right, let's read and see what they commit to. I'm gonna read this. Let's go 32 to 33 first. So, um, so the first thing they do is we have a temple tax. So we take on our, verse 32, we take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the, moon, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. This was a tax among the people that they gave so that all these things that were commanded could be carried out. All these things that are listed here were all of the things that God had commanded in the law and all the different festivals that they were required to keep. The people had to contribute so that that would happen. And they're saying, we're gonna do that. So we have the temple tax. Next, as we keep reading, is we're gonna hear about offerings, 
first fruits and tithes. So verse 34, it says, we the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. So first we see here is that there is firewood because there was a perpetual fire in the temple for all the sacrifices. How did they keep that fire going? The people provided the wood for it. And so that's that first. Hey, we're gonna, we're committing, we're providing wood for the temple here. Verse 35, then it says, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground. Now notice the word first fruits that's repeated here. First fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the, in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levi. Right, let me hit pause there. I'm going to hit pause there. First fruits. So you've got all these things commanded in the law that they're giving to provide. And then you have this principle. What does first fruits mean? The best, the first. In fact, no crop could be eaten until the first fruits have been offered. The ground, the tree, my children, cattle, herds, flock, dough, wine, oil. I'm bringing my best, I'm bringing my first, and it's to God. I'll draw out some principles here in a second. And then finally, we see this tithe here. In the middle of verse 37, it says, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites, when the Levites receive the tithes. That's a wise principle. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. How are we to think about this as New Testament followers of Jesus? Is there a temple today? Yes. It was a trick question. Where's the temple? Yes. The church is the temple of the living. Like it is God has poured his spirit in you. Like the temple, you know, highlighted the, the presence of God. He's poured that out into you collectively, the church. And this collective church has local gatherings. So if you were to ask me, what is the practical outflowing as we think about this, is that we ought to think about what does it look like for local churches to be a part of supporting the ministry that we say this is what God has called us to. 
Thank you, Bobby. So like for Jason Cross, like we're saying, we're gonna ask you to put on the table, would you give to Multiply March? Because we believe there needs to be a work that this guy's gonna do and in other parts of our city and it's gonna take money to go do that. And maybe newsflash for some of you guys, like the way that we're able to do life and ministry and what God's called us to do at Redemption Hill is it takes money. Some of the things is practical things like, man, le leasing or renting a space or all the equipment that you see around here. Some of it could be, it could be personnel or people that, that we've said, hey, they're gifted and we were gonna, we're gonna bless and, and empower and release them to go do this ministry. But it takes us. The way Redemption Hill accomplishes our mission and vision is you guys. And, I, and I'm included in that. And we say, we are gonna pull our resources to go after what God's put in our heart. So is a Christian required to tithe? That's another one that I can't unpack here in a long one, but I'll give you my short answer. I don't see a New Testament command that says you must tithe 10% of your income. Some of you like are ready to walk out on me. <laughs> Like, what? I'm open. Come help me out with that. I think a lot of that is tied to our, cult our, our culture and the way we talk about that in the church. But don't misunderstand me. I believe if you think, all right, 10% and I got it, then what you've done is you've just checked the box. And Jesus is much more concerned with, than, than you checking a box that he has your heart. Because you know what? He doesn't just get 10%, he gets 100%. And I think a better question for you would be, God, how much do I need to keep? Like assume that God, that you wanna flow through me and be a blessing to others. How much of this of what you bless me do I need to keep? And how much can I say, God, use it to see your mission go forth among the nations? If you were to ask me specifically, I believe what they gave in the Old Testament was much more than 10%. So if you want a good starting spot, I would say 10% is great. And, and I love this concept of first fruits. And I would challenge you to it. My wife and I, when we write out our budget, we don't go save and spend and say how much we got to give to the church or to this ministry or to this partner. No, we go first. And, and we say, God, you have blessed us with this income and this job. And off the top, we set a percentage. God, it's yours. And I would challenge you to that. Like, I, don't just give God your leftovers. And I would challenge you to set a percentage and say, God, would you so bless me that I can keep raising the percentage? Because that's, when you go look at the New Testament and principles on giving, you see systematic, you see proportional, you see generous, you see sacrificial, you see voluntary. I'm not coming and looking how much you may make and say, you've got to give this. Man, I want to say, look at what God's done for you. And would you pray, God, help me to cultivate a life that just wants to lavish people and the purposes you've put on my heart. If you're interested in how to do that, most people at Redemption Hill give online through our Redemption Hill Church app. You can set up recurring giving. You can give one time. I would say for those of you that have set up recurring giving, maybe a next step for you is to say, you know what? 
Have I gone and looked at what I've just set up? And do I need to adjust that? Or at least maybe your next step is just to pray, hey God, what's my next step so that I can cultivate a heart and a lifestyle of generosity? Man, I need to pick up. I wanna share a cool story with you. Last week, Kevin Luce emailed me. He was here at Multiply March last year. You're gonna wanna hear the story, so give me grace on a little bit extra time here. And I, only, I don't get to preach as often now, so I gotta pack everything in here. <laughs> He said, John, I got a story to tell. He said, you gave us this money. You raised this money in Multiply March last year. And I want you to know this is how God has used it. And he said, I told you last year about, I'm going to use the name Joel. I've changed the name. Joel, one of his ministry partners. And he said, let me tell you what just happened recently with Joel. And I'm going to look at my notes here because I don't want to mess up what he told me. He says, recently Joel's approached with an opportunity. There's a small business owner. Now, for those of you who don't know Kevin, he's in Africa. Um, there was a small business owner who employs and provides hostile, hostile style housing for house helpers in an urban center. Y'all with me? This small business owner has a hostel for housekeepers. So she, she's basically investing in women and connecting them up with clients that they can go be housekeepers for. She came to Joel and she says, look, many of the women that come into my hostel have come from very broken and hard backgrounds. They need care, they need compassion, and they need healing. But many of them work from people who are in an ethnic group that is hostile to Christianity and the gospel. And so here's what I wanna do. This is the small business owner. I wanna provide cultural training and care for them as well as I want them all to be able to share the gospel. How cool is that? And so check this out. Her clients have been so happy with these house helpers that she's now sending employees sending employees overseas to the Middle East and into the Arabian Peninsula. Now, if you know anything about Christianity over there, this is awesome. And so this business owner approached Joel and asked him to design a training to provide healing, care, compassion alongside of a local church and to teach them to share the gospel. So when Joel goes to the hostel recently, two of the ladies wanna talk with him and they get saved. Like, this is awesome. Um, and and, and um, Kevin's saying, man, maybe these are the first fruits. So anyways, the, the training program launched two weeks ago. 25 women, 25 of these house helpers signed up. 40 showed up. And so Joel split on, yes, yes. Joel has split them up into small groups. They're working through discovery Bible studies to engage with scripture and a small missions training program has been launched. The funds you gave have been used to launch this training, provide the materials and simple snacks for these women during this training and disciples are being made and multiplied. That's the fruit of Multiply March. Let's give it up Redemption Hill, yes. Man, I gotta wrap this up quick. The title of my sermon is Gospel Motivated Obedience. So you're like, man, how are you going to get there? I want to end. 
I want to end with this question. How does the gospel shape how we think about obedience? Because it would be wrong for you just to hear this and be like, oh, my next step is I need to go make a covenant renewal because let me, let me give you a newsflash. They did not keep their covenant. Do you know what they needed? This is a part of the story where we know the solution. Jesus. And this is how the gospel shapes how we're to think about obedience today. Jesus does what we cannot do. He perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law. So where, where they said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna commit to obey everything. No, you didn't and you can't. And you and I can't either. But Jesus did. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He is the beautiful display of God's love and grace. He took upon himself the curse that comes from our disobedience. And guess what he does? He gives you life that comes from the blessing of obedience. He fulfills the Sabbath. He is the perfect high priest, the new temple, and the sacrificial offering that all of the offerings pointed to. Jesus does what we cannot do. But second, Jesus gives us a new identity. And this was their greatest need. And this was the promise in the Old Testament that God would send a savior to change us from the inside out. They needed a new heart. And that's what Jesus does. When, when you come to Jesus with repentance and faith, you become a child of God. You're a new creation. Ephesians says you are now alive, raised, seated with Jesus. You are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. And God is now gradually transforming you to become into the likeness of himself. And you know what? Love and obedience are still at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's at the very heart of the great commission. Go make disciples, baptize, and then what? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. But here's the difference. The gospel shapes our obedience because now we pursue obedience not for acceptance or for identity, but from acceptance and from identity. It's because of who I am. I'm a child of the king. And so I wanna go live and reflect what it looks like to be a child of the king. And so I wanna wrap up by giving you a few encouragements here. The gospel shapes our obedience because now we think about doing that flows from being. Sizable portions of Paul's letters in the New Testament are structured this way. The first chunk of it, are, he unpacks the indicative, the great gospel truths. This is what's true of you now, not because of anything you've done, but because of who God is. And then the last part of it is the imperative. Now go live because this is who you are. So Ephesians unpacks the gospel and then 4.1, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling or like Romans, 
1 through 11 unpacks the gospel and he gets to verse 12 and he says, I plead with you um, in light of the mercies of God to present your body as a living sacrifice. And so this is how the gospel shapes how I think about obedience. I want to share a final quote from a book called A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. And if you want some help here, go buy the book because it is a great tool to help you meditate and think on the gospel. And he says this, the gospel changes my view of God's commandments and that it helps me to see the heart of the person from whom the commandments come. When I begin my train of thought with the gospel, I realize this, if God loved me enough to sacrifice his son's life for me, then he must be guided by that same love when he speaks his commandments to me. Did you get that? The same love that sent Jesus to the cross is the same love when he says, do not intermarry. Viewing God's commands and prohibitions in this light, I can see them for what they really are, friendly signposts from a heavenly father who was seeking to love me through each directive so that I might experience his very fullness forever. He gives you these commands so that you might experience his fullness. And so here's the point. Experience the fullness of God by giving your life, giving yourself to a lifestyle of gospel-motivated obedience. As I pray for us and as our team comes up here, I would maybe ask you to consider this. They made a fresh covenant renewal, which I think as we come to the gospel and we apply the gospel to it, that we like, I I think an invitation is like, God, here's my life. I want to follow you. God, empower and use me. But they did this. They shared particular areas where God had pricked their heart. What would hit your top three list? As you think about God, here's my life. I want to give myself, I want to experience your fullness and obedience. What's your top three that you would say, God, would you work in these areas to help me follow you? Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. God, we need your help because apart from you, we can do nothing. And so God, we pray by the power of your spirit, God, would you renew just fresh desires within us for love, love for you, love for others, and to make much of you among the nations. God, would you show us by your spirit the areas where we're not experiencing your fullness? God, would you show us and help us to meditate on the gospel to see who we are that would propel us into a lifestyle of obedience to know and love you and enjoy you? God, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.